Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Alva. We're back from conference and we talk about... SMP conference. The race to be the next speaker. And will Boris Johnson get and pass a Brexit deal? So we are back from our final conference of 2019. I'm joined by Alva Ray, who was there from the start of Lib Dem conference. I was say to the bitter end of SMB conference, and I <laughs> imagine Patrick angrily listening to this. He's still on the train, still, guys. Still on the train. <laughs> it's not quite over for one of us. Um, because it's, I, I, keep, I keep kind of apologising for this. I'm not sorry. One, because mm. I thought the train journey, the delays on the way there weren't fun, but the actual train journey itself was very nice. Mm-hmm. But also, I do just think it's immoral to fly when there is an alternative to flying. And the train back, and Aberdeen to London, was, was lovely. Was lovely, yeah. If, if there had been a direct train on the Saturday and it wasn't at 7.30, and if the indirect train hadn't been delayed at Glasgow and delayed at Euston, it would have been beautiful on both ends. But the vagaries of the last train on the Tuesday meant that one of us had to stay back to cover the speech live from the hall. And that person was not either of us. Uh, yeah. Well, Patrick just kept saying he wanted to see the Granite City, and he said the word Granite City so many times, I've started to dream about the phrase Granite City. So mm. he, he really had it coming in many ways, and he covered the speech very well. But so, yeah, this was your sort of first set. What were your kind of, like, impressions, having done the... The full gauntlet now. The full whammy. So we spoke about this a little bit last week when we did the live pod with Anush and Patrick and I was sort of saying about how it was interesting to confront the reality of the Conservative membership who voted for Boris Johnson and to to see what that looked like and felt like in terms of it being largely white and male and older and them overwhelmingly backing No Deal. Overall impressions, I was impressed by the Lib Dem conference and SNP conferences in terms of like sheer political effectiveness and a sort of a clear message and good political strategy which didn't fail to be as strong at Labour and there was a sort of general lack of energy at Conservative conference because they don't vote on anything. Yeah I mean this is the thing it's that ultimately like I think the thing is if, if you if you let your members vote it will occasionally produce conferences like Labour's this year but mostly you get a better atmosphere if your conference is about something other than just people grunting, cheering and stomping. 
there's a thing I was really struck by this year at SNP conference because it's the first one I've done at Aberdeen, not Glasgow. And Glasgow is a wonderful city, but it's not a wonderful city to go and do SNP conference at your own on because lots of people go home. So yeah. this thing where at the end you like say to like whoever like you've been talking to about how they see politics, you're like, what's the plan for the evening? And they're like, going home to see my wife and kids. And then, and, <laughs> and then you're in the hotel on your yeah. own with room service. Yeah, with room service, watching About Time, truly the worst Richard Curtis film. Um, I've never seen it. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it. So it's about... But do you like Richard Curtis films in general? Yeah, I do. Okay. Well, I used to like them. I think... So I didn't like About Time. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember if I've seen The Boat Then Rocked and not enjoyed it or my partner's seen The Boat Then mm-hmm. Rocked and not enjoyed it and I've heard about it. But <laughs> one way or the other, I have a, I'm either bound in matrimony too or myself hold a negative opinion of The Boat Then Rocked. About Time, right, is about a man <laughs> We're really going for this back so in time but over his own personal thing. And one, it kind of, it, it feels like one of those classic examples of like something which is you can tell is for someone who's like, I don't like sci-fi. But where they've kind of like and made something which isn't very good at sci-fi, isn't very good at whatever genre it's nominally being marketed at. So it fails mm-hmm. as a rom-com, fails as sci-fi. The bit where he meets Rachel McAdams, mm-hmm. the notebook one. Yeah. It's played as many as being sweet, but it's actually just quite dark because basically he meets her, talks to her, doesn't win her over, travels back in time. And it's one of those weird things where it's just like, this is actually, if I found out and someone had like successfully wooed me by traveling back in time until they eventually worked out the like ways to hit my buttons, as it were, I would feel I'd been denied informed consent. It's just, it's, mm. it's really creepy. Oh, you'd be flattered. Well, okay, fine. There's that <laughs> kind of laid back. But, I mean, Aren't so... you meant to be like the woke youngster of the <laughs> NST? Well, so I haven't seen the film. I, don't, I mean, I don't know, but maybe some people be flattered. These are all opinions that you wouldn't have. And that was a whole space that would have been filled by Inside Into SMP if they had had the foresight to hold their conference in Aberdeen the way they did this year. Yeah. And actually, the really interesting thing this year is... Now, the SNP are famous for their unity. And the thing that the, the sort of people in the Scottish Labour Party and Scottish Conservatives say is, oh, it's because they're nationalists, which I think is one of those theories which is superficially really appealing. You're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But it falls apart the second you go, oh, but didn't Plaid Cymru have an, an incredibly, okay, actually, not incredibly acrimonious, considering that they had a leadership election in which the then leader was defenestrated because people felt that she wasn't good enough and because they wanted to change the Brexit position to one which is good for them in some parts of Wales, but brave in many others. Given the circumstances of that leadership challenge, it was as non-acrimonious as it is possible to be. However, mm. the phrase, given the circumstances, is working quite hard there. It's just like, okay, well, so they're a nationalist party. Also, the second you kind of expand it from, like, leftist nationalist parties, you're like, wait... There are how many pro-Catalan parties in Spain? Clearly, they don't all get on. And yeah. if you think about like the radical right, where both in this country and throughout the, throughout the continent, the radical right has a supply-side problem in that the voters who want to vote for a radical right party tend to have a situation in which the actually existing radical right parties are so schismatic and incompetent that they can't capitalise on, on the demand available. So I think the, their nationalist thing is never quite... It is one of those things where I feel like whenever a Labour MP has said it to me in the past, I kind of like, it's one of those things like, mm-hmm, yeah, seems plausible. And it's only two minutes later when you've stopped going, mm-hmm, seems plausible. You're like, wait, no, that, that doesn't work, does it? No. But they are a, one of their features, which yeah, I think is more unique than just going, they're nationalists. Not least because if you look at every successful phase of conservative politics in Scotland, 
they have, you know, when they've succeeded in Scotland, it's by being an explicitly British nationalist party. And I think the line that the Conservatives have never been divided on an issue is uh, hard to sustain. But it was a bit more acrimonious. Again, this is sort of the reverse of the thing for the SNP, in that they did have rows about Plan B, which is... Uh, mm-hmm. But they quashed it very <laughs> successfully. So Plan B, it was this um, idea put forward by... Chris McClenney, who's sort of sort of known as a as a Salmonite, this idea that the SNP would push forward with independence negotiations on a mandate of their majority rather than going for another independence referendum, which they quashed, I think, quite successfully. The day that it all broke out, I was doing my Harry Harmon piece, and you you and Pat were covering it. But in the days that followed. It was interesting to see the, the message discipline from the the leadership on it, that in every single speech there were sort of rallying calls about independence and about how it was coming, but some quite effective rhetorical manoeuvres to really dispel that idea that going for a more gung-ho approach would somehow reap benefits. So John Swinney, who um, I think is quite a nifty politician, made a speech where he was saying that the tactics of Trump and Boris Johnson won't work and that they're the party of persuasion and patience as well as talking at length about how they're on the cusp of independence and it was just very cleverly done because it really it addressed plan B and the reasons that some some members might want to go for it and really like dismissed them out of hand with quite a you know quite a cutting put down without ever really addressing it and I just thought it was testament to the strong grip that Nicola Sturgeon has on, on the party, despite the rumblings of a rebellion. Yeah, I thought Swinney's speech was a brilliant bit of sort of rhetorical sort of two audience facing in that on the one hand, it was very much like essentially every SNP speech could have been boiled down to, hey, look, you're, you know how we're here passing meaningful legislation you know, banning smacking, introducing baby boxes, et cetera, et cetera, you know, not noticeably dysfunctional and see how them look, how dysfunctional they are. You know, they couldn't pass a football, let alone a bill. Wouldn't you like your politics to, to be like us, to, mm. you know, to be like this all the time? You don't need to be Peter Mandelson to work out why that is an effective line to take for them, given the state of politics at the moment. Yeah. <clears throat> but he was essentially doing that while at the same time with the same lines, as you say, doing a kind of like not particularly coded. And this is why Plan B is bad. And it's why yeah. they're, it's odd because I think in a way, right, their greatest weakness is also their greatest strength, which is they have incredible and astonishing strength in strength. <laughs> strength in depth that's a Scottish um, word strept we learned it yeah in we learned it there yeah um, that's that's our line everyone in the SNP says it I'm actually <laughs> embarrassed for our listeners and than they thought that I was misspeaking um so the the strength in depth where yeah you know, they've only got 35 MPs it's only a 120 seater parliament they don't have of which they do not have a majority right and it's a small country. It's quite rare for a party with not many MPs, you know, just with aren't that many Scottish MPs, they obviously have a, a large majority of them, to have that much talent available to, to yeah. them. The flip side of that is the... So, you know, Joanna Cherry, yeah, another very impressive operator, you know, kicked off their conference with the kind of like, you know, the EU, what's going on, thinking we will be. And she was, you know, doing a whole kind of, we're the real opposition, we're the most effective force at Westminster. And it's one of those things where it's just like, which I think is at least arguable, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think I think you know it, it's you know you you can you can make a case that that it is true. The problem is is if it's true, then the argument inevitably from the unionist side becomes. Well, why would you give that up? Why would you give yeah. that up? Yeah, mm. and obviously they have, you know, they're they're kind of trying to make that into a strength by going, well, yeah, imagine how much better we would be off the leash. But it's fascinating because it's not actually a problem they ought to have because there are only thirty five of them. They ought not to to be able to do quite that that well at Westminster. Yeah, so I thought it was kind of an interesting one. Although, of course, you, know, you alluded to doing your Harriet Harman speaker interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're interviewing all of the speaker candidates, and we will uh, do a kind of conversation about that later down the line. But the slightly weird thing is, between us, it means that all three of us have at one point been covering a different party at conference. This week, I, I yeah. had the Cameron book. This week, Patrick was mostly on Queen's speech duty. You were on... Uh... I mean, at Labour conference, your body was at Labour, but your mind was with <laughs> yeah. David Cameron. <laughs> God, that makes me sound like, yeah, I was having the world's weirdest affair with the former <laughs> Prime Minister. But yeah, I mean, it's very true. And I do keep having conversations with people. Because like, the thing I'd forgotten is, of course, at conference you have two conversations with MPs and activists. How do you think it's going and how do you think the last party one went? Which yeah. meant I spent a large chunk of Tory conference as well when they were like, what was your sense of the mood at Labour conference? Just being like... Yeah, we're like, well, uh, Patrick and Alva wrote a good piece about that, and I'm just going to um, repeat Cameron's it. Cameron's book is good. I like, yeah, I was just like, yeah, Cameron's book. Wouldn't you love to have him back? Um, which was useful for getting colour, because obviously a lot of there are people who go like he's a figure of the past. But then yeah, the old the MPs who kind of look from side to side and they're like, oh my god, I'm I just want him back so badly. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. And there is, of course, only one question at the moment, which is, can Boris Johnson get and pass a deal? I'm a cautious optimist on this. Well, depending on your point of view. I would be cautiously pro him both getting a deal and passing it, even though I don't think that you agree. So by the time uh, those of you who are, are not paywall subscribers, he, the deal may well have happened or not happened but you know so let's primarily talk about how it passes but so let's first off just get a sense of what so what's your feeling about why you think he is he's going to get one because i think once you cross that threshold of i'm prepared to talk about a border on the irish sea about regulations that be different from northern ireland than the rest of the uk then you've largely cracked it if he made that breakthrough with Leo Varadkar, then that has to be the basis of what they're talking about. And he must have already kind of calculated that either he could take the DUP with him or more likely it was, you know, he could lose that support and still get it through with the help of, of Labour MPs. Definitely, I think that in terms of, I mean, that gamble, we'll see whether it does pass. But I think that that is his calculation, which should make negotiating it with the EU relatively straightforward. Yeah, so I think I essentially agree on the... One of the things I find a bit frustrating about lots of Brexit coverage is when people kind of talk about it being complex. Or, well, actually, you know, mm. there's a shared 
or at least it was shared. There, there is a, share, a shared British and Irish interest in regulatory alignment on, on the Irish border, which before our EU membership was facilitated essentially by Britain being the bigger, meaner country and going, you're going to change your immigration laws, as actually did happen in the 50s. And when they both became EU members, it's facilitated by the regulatory umbrella of the EU. Now the UK is leaving and you have to have something which continues that. And that either border down the sea or we remain within the regulatory orbit. It's not a complex issue, despite the kind of best efforts of, you know, some of our broadcasters to pretend that it is. Uh, yeah, and I kind of think, as with Checkers, where, yes, there was a lot of, like, nonsense stuff which wasn't going to happen in Checkers, but the yeah. really important thing was she had basically gone, in the choice between freedom to diverge and access to the market, I've decided I want access. And the important thing is, and he has crossed the Rubicon of going, I choose a deal. I'm yeah. dubious about it passing this parliament. Why do you think it will pass? So I don't think it will have the backing of the DUP. But I think that amidst all this talk about him losing his majority, those 21 ex-Tory MPs plus Amber Rudd who joined them after, they're people who do broadly want a deal and who I think could be reasonably counted on to back it. So then that like that represents it in a kind of misleading way. And then I think, you know, we still, I mean, at least yesterday, we still had people like Stephen Kinnock from Labour saying that he wants a deal and he wants a compromise. And if, as that group of MPs for a deal said, if they're happy, you know, the Labour ones who said, if, as they say, they're happy to vote for any, you know, any deal that's fine with the EU and fine with Ireland, then... You know, the fact of it being a deal means that they'll vote for it because obviously it'll be fine with the EU and and Irish interests. So I think that, yeah, I see Labour MPs voting for it at least, you know, 15, 16, 17. I think it would be tight, but, you know, so many of those people don't want to fight an election without it resolved and they feel like the time is now and it's urgent. Yeah, I mean, so I essentially agree with all of those things and this may be like a classic example of fighting the last war in that obviously you know every year I do a post-mortem of all of the things I got wrong and what I hope to learn from them obviously the kind of the big post-mortem thing at the moment and hopefully there won't be something more mistaken coming down the track is me saying that Boris Johnson's front bench career was over because Conservative MPs were so disgusted and disappointed with his handling of basically everything as foreign secretary that you talk to the average Tory MP and they'd go, can't do it, not up to the job. Mm. And then what would happen is often their eyes would light up like hubcaps and they'd go, but, you know, when he came to visit my association, people who weren't even members were coming up and asking for selfies. And in the end, that star quality mattered to them more than, than this. And the kind of... My kind of interim conclusion from from the... And I strongly urge you and Patrick to do it, partly because it's really good exercise, but also it's a really easy bit of Christmas time content to do. You just go through your own <laughs> stuff, go, wow, that aged poorly. And everyone's so supportive because uh, commentators are mostly so unrepentive, re- mm. repentant, and everyone's just like, wow, someone's fessing up to something. And it's also really useful, I think. Some Christmas humble pie. Yeah. But my conclusion from that was that ultimately, if someone goes my views are here, my political interests are here, they will always go for their political interests because, of course, the Labour Party rightly thinks that its interests are served by defeating the other parties. The Conservative Party rightly thinks that a bad Conservative Prime Minister 
who can become and continue to win elections as prime minister is better than a conservative prime minister who loses to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and my underlying assumption, right, is that those Labour MPs want to remain Labour MPs. I don't see how, and when I tweeted this yesterday, some people thought that I uh, was tweeting like the, you know, you know, the result of my communing with Seamus Milne. But yeah, mm-hmm. this is not the result of my communing with anyone. It's just my feeling about having spoken to the leadership of, of you know, rebels, Lib Dems, Labour, where I think their interests, what I think will produce is. If Brexit passes because Labour MPs vote for it, you know, Joe Swinson's eyes will light up like hubcaps. She will go, they facilitated Brexit because he's a secret Brexiteer. And that will be something a lot of people, I think, want to think and want to agree with. Mm -hmm. The only shield for the Labour Party is to go, we didn't want this Tory-facing deal. Now we need to get the best Brexit possibly. But look, we've taken the whip away from the people who have done so. And I just think that anyone who wants a continuing future in Labour politics is going to decide, yeah, they'll go, oh, the level, play- the level playing field, oh, this is a hard Brexit. I just think they'll find an excuse not to. But that's where it's really interesting, though, because we don't really know, once a deal passes, what the post-Brexit feeling will be, even though we'll just be in that that transition period and there'll be still be still more negotiations to, to go. I don't know whether it would wash with people that, you know, whether whether looking back retrospectively on the Labour MPs who facilitated Brexit would be something that enough people mind about, especially mm. because in some ways, even though, yes, you've facilitated Boris Johnson getting a deal, you've also eliminated Labour's Brexit problem in that you could then go into an election and talk about other things and you would kind of you would take away the main electoral strategy of the Conservatives which is you have to vote for us to get Brexit done they would no longer have that and they would maybe struggle with an electoral offer that was just oh we agree with Labour on everything yeah I mean I think I think this is the thing isn't I think yeah one of the things I find slightly strange about people making very confident predictions about Labour being doomed based on bad polls is one the 2017 election but two we know that there are one way or other there's going to be a climate change event Mm -hmm. in a couple of days time right whether it's extension deal whatever it is we know that many of the political realities of the present moment will be given a pretty good stress test and some of them may not apply so i think it's it's certainly possible and it shakes out for labor in that way Mm -hmm. however and I kind of think if, if I were working for Corbyn, I would desperately want those MPs to vote for it and then I would take the whip away from them because they voted yeah. against it. But you think that maybe those MPs, when push comes to shove, wouldn't vote for it? Well, I just don't think that Stephen Kinnock has like, worked his life to become an MP in order to become a sacrificial lamb for Jeremy Corbyn's entry into Downing Street. But but maybe mm. I'm wrong. But I just yeah. I just think like you know, your Gareth Snells, your Stephen Kinnocks, your Caroline Flints... I don't think enough of them are going to go, do you know what, I really want to be a burnt offering for Jeremy Corbyn. So, Alva, you have been spending a lot of your time meeting the candidates uh, for the Speaker. You will eventually do all eyebrows. I actually don't know how many of them there are because you are... There are nine. Nine. Yeah, so Um, we maybe won't get through all of them. But, yeah, I have been at the Hustings and I've so far interviewed three of them. So um, Third of the way. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting there. So, yeah, I've interviewed Harriet Harman, Meg Hillier and Eleanor Lang so far. And also being at Hustings has given me a bit of a sense of the race so far. It's been very interesting. I feel like maybe it's only our nerdier listeners who are following it, but it's a very 
interesting look at the issues that MPs perceive about the way Parliament is run and broader issues about what it's like being an MP. So yeah, honourable mention to Meg Hillier because I interviewed her this morning and um, she's making a very interesting pitch based mainly around issues of bullying in Parliament but also sort of a broader offer which is that she really understands the problems with being an MP and so many of her proposals around sort of bringing in an HR to Parliament, offering MPs guidance on how to run an office and how to do all of the tasks that they're that they're given the second they arrive, that they're given no help with. I think people sometimes don't realise that MPs are given literally no training when they arrive in Parliament and that is at least a factor in the way that there's so much bad practice in terms of employment. And then she also, you know, she's, you know, proposing like different rules around timings in the chamber and HR training for them and like counselling when they leave and careers advice when they leave because obviously it's you know a bit traumatic for MPs to suddenly be made redundant Mm. after a crushing electoral defeat so she's flagging some quite interesting issues because bullying is a huge issue in parliament she said today that she thinks it's going to be the next expenses scandal if they don't address it and I think I agree I don't know what you think, but I just think that that is really ready to blow up. There aren't mechanisms to shine a light on it sufficiently at the moment. It's difficult for journalists to report on and it's difficult for parties to deal with because they don't necessarily want to lose MPs or to have scandals in in the public view. But it's bubbling there under the surface. And, you know, I think, you know, there could be a big scandal around it. Yeah, so I I think it's a really important issue. And I think, you know... Michaela is someone who takes it genuinely seriously. I mean, actually, another person who takes it very seriously and, and made a lot of kind of surprise. I mean, they aren't fans for anything else, but a, a lot of kind of surprising people around Parliament are, are now, you know, will kind of, when someone says, oh, lol, Andrea Leadsom as a mother, they'll go, oh, no, actually, you know, she took this cross party stuff really seriously. You know, someone harassed mm-hmm. me on the estate and she dealt with it really well, et cetera, et cetera. She, she made a lot of, I mean, this is the thing is, leader of the house, because it is about the functioning of the house, does reveal something about the person who, who holds it, because it ought to be something where people go, actually, they took these serious problems seriously. And she did that very well. But I think the the structural problem is that I think there's a lot of people who kind of think like, oh, we've all had a bad boss in that kind of like sort of very airy sort of way. But mm. also because like the reason why there's problems with bullying and sexual harassment in Westminster are all of the like cultural reasons that those things exist anywhere else. But the big difference, of course, is that people understandably don't I mean, I'm not saying that I think that if you are like being bullied by a conservative MP in a marginal seat, then you ought to keep quiet about it because you don't want to lose the seat to Labour. But there is no other workplace in the world where mm. where that consideration is actually true. Yeah, mm. like yeah, like to take say yeah, the stuff which started with me too, right? Like yeah. ultimately, no one in Warner Brothers goes, "God, it's a moral calamity that will make the West <laughs> a worse." But <laughs> yeah, like, no one thinks you know the country will become a worse place to live yeah. if we fire this producer and Disney wins a couple yeah. more Oscars. Or that producer's in a safe seat, and we don't want, or you know, you know, get <clears throat> well because it's, it's actually you yeah. know people in safe seats as well. They don't yeah. want to rock the boat if they're like in a strong position at the moment. But yeah, that producer's in a marginal, so we won't do anything. Yeah, <laughs> but Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> Yeah, just, just, yeah, just yeah. like the, and so all of the dynamics which protect abuses of power elsewhere are then reinforced by a sincere problem about not handing control of a safe seat to another faction, 
not handing control to another party in a marginal seat. And I just think the problem is, is that I think it's great that people like me are talking about it and really want to do something about it, and they should do something about it for moral reasons. I kind of think the argument of this will be the next expenses is kind of a way that those people are trying to get the people who just want to go, but look, it's politically inconvenient to do something about it, not to do it. But I think the fact that it's politically inconvenient is one of the reasons why... And, yeah, this this might be, you know, the hope, yeah, I guess in some ways hopefully it would be. Uh, the 2020 things I got wrong will be, actually, it turned out it was a big deal, but I don't think it will be. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Alva Ray. It's recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is Delved by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. I'm still threatening to change the music, so let me know if you think this is a bad idea, a terrible idea, a good idea, an idea which will cause you to march upon the NS office with a pitchfork. 